Hello and welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. Today we are speaking with Richard Francis Jones. He is a highly awarded practicing Australian architect. He is a graduate of Columbia University in New York and the University of Sydney and has taught in many schools of architecture. He is a life fellow of the Australian Institute of Architects, an honorary fellow of the American Institute of Architects, and a member of the Royal Institute of British Architects. He is design director of FJMT Studio. We're having him on today to speak about his book, In Truth and Lies in Architecture. I have not, unfortunately, I've not been able to read the book before interviewing Richard, which would be kind of standard practice, but um, I've been able to review lightly the book, and there's some very interesting takes on truth and architecture and design and practice and theory that I want to dig into. So let me not yammer on forever and let's talk to Richard. Richard Francis Jones, correct? Correct. Get it? <laughs> Double last name. Um, it, I, unfortunately, I haven't been able to read your book before this interview, but I was able to look over kind of the summary and some points of it that I thought were very thought-provoking and might actually convince me to read a book. I have a hard time <laughs> reading. I'm always listening to things. So is there an audio version available? Not yet. No, Not yet. no. Maybe maybe later there will be. But okay. one thing about the book is it's, a, it's like a series of little essays that are kind of related. So each one I could, is... I could do that. You could, you could yeah, you can, you can get one. You know, you could, you, could, you could do one in 20 minutes. Nice, nice. Well, um... Mm. Definitely, I'll, I'll need to get a copy of that. Regardless, it sounds like a good uh, a good read, especially from the subject matter I'm seeing in this summary of it. Um, I have some some definitions I'd like to get from you for like a clarity to to then uh, compare against some of your statements from the summary to as discussion points. Mm -hmm. So, to start out, what is your definition of architecture? Ah, well, that's a really big question. Um, I think uh, I do try to differentiate between architecture and building. Um, and I think that is perhaps helpful in understanding what architecture is. Um, architecture is where you in, imbue with build, in building something other than it, the banality, if you like, and the directness of its, of its purpose. And the truth of the matter is it's actually hard to exclude that. You know, you can you can build a building that says something unintended, mm -hmm. right? Even in its banality, right? Right. So I think architecture, in a way, is the poetic content of building. Hmm. Okay. I can I can understand that. My um, I've seen this in in my experience. My my background's in architecture, so I. I understand this to a large degree already, but uh, you're able to articulate that in a way that that helps me separate the two, architecture and simply uh, shelter and protection. So if you, in Maine, if you get into certain areas that are more inland and very rural, uh, sometimes the old farmhouses and everything else look like there was an idea of proportion and uh, truth and materials and everything else uh, that, mm. that went into these buildings. And then there's 
other buildings where you realize that these people wanted quick, low cost, warmth and protection. And those were the, the, only, um, the only requirements in, in what they needed from, from the outside looking at it. But then, you know, all the stuff that I'm in front of shooting uh, and the stuff that I appreciate has this far more uh, poetic experience to it. This far more, um, there, there's a, an ideology or a personalization of a person's experience that is shown in how this thing works, is put together, constructed, and how it interacts with the human experience in that in that building. And so That's, I would assume. Look, it's a, yeah, it's a good example you make of the vernacular, actually, mm -hmm. because in a way, when you look at those rural buildings, um, when we go back to how a lot of them were made, they're made in a very um, unselfconscious way. People are just making a barn, they're making a farmhouse, they're making a shelter in a way that is somehow just natural. It's almost thoughtless. And it's done in a way that um, makes a connection to the land, to the purpose of what they're building, and to the choice of materials. It's unselfconscious um, and transparent. And then the processes that you began to talk about, which now dominate the production of building, almost across the world, are the ones that actually are reductive, that, that, that take that naturalness away, that introduce a whole lot of process, which, is our, which are purely about reducing costs, doing things in the most pragmatic and, and, and in a way industrialised, institutionalised way, that robs the architecture of its, of its meaning and ultimately you know, strips it of that essential quality. And then perhaps what happens is it's plastered on in a very superficial way, which makes us mm. think that it has some value, but actually it's even worse, right? Um, yeah. And that, that, is what, that is the process of alienation that pretty much all of us have been subjected to. So the, there, there's, there's two things in there. Um, one, one of the things I've always noticed is these buildings that are left over from a bygone era seem to be far there whoever constructed them seem to have a much better grasp of proportions than the common buildings today and i'm just assuming that these buildings farmhouses barns that are left over were the common buildings of the day then that just survived um now did they actually have a better sense of proportion and understanding of materials how they how they what they mean how they work and, and the vernacular and the feeling of the area did they just more intrinsically understand that and communicate what what they communicate that through what they built or are those simply the buildings that were really beautiful then and because of their beauty were they kept around and maintained did we ha did they have a bunch of crappy buildings back then that just didn't last and this is my struggle with the past of these beautiful older vernacular buildings of New England that I, mm. you know, I really love. Uh, were they better builders back then and better designers just naturally? Because one idea in my mind, and hopefully this rambling thing, you can pull some, some useful things out of. But were people back then required to do more themselves? 
So in doing more themselves, they gain more understanding and wisdom of the wide expanse of life in general that is then communicated through what they actually built, where today we have refined what we do down to very niche things. And then like our value, we, we put into this very narrow, uh, narrow lane, if you will. Like I only take photographs or video. I don't have to do a lot of other things. So maybe I'm not getting enough experience to then tell me about design and everything else. I have a design background, so I kind of cheated there and went to school. But if I was only doing this one thing for value and then paying someone to do everything else, would I have less of an understanding of the totality of what I'm doing and how it communicates my existence and how I live? And do you, do you understand what I'm rambling on about? <laughs> mm, mm, I do. And I think that my view is that this, you know, kind of schism we're talking about um, is one that came with modernism, came with modernity, right? Came with the very processes that have disconnected us and alienated us from the land, from from mm -hmm. our place, actually. We've become these kind of globalised, process-driven uh, individuals, disconnected from community, disconnected from our culture, disconnected from our land. So when we come to a question of how do we build, then we kind of are very self-conscious about it. And we are also very regulated and defined by all the processes that surround the realization of a building. When we're thinking about vernacular architecture, when we're stepping back, not very far, actually, yeah. none, of, none of those questions come up, right? We, we, we're connected to this land, we're building in this place, and we don't think self-consciously about it. We actually build in the way that our, um, you know, our ancestors, right, our predecessors uh, have built. Thing change was very, very slow, and the processes around it, which is the material choices, the production processes, are very limited. Right? So you're dealing with something that is unselfconscious, almost intuitive, and that's limited and essentially connected to its place and its culture already, right? Hmm. Now we sit back and it's an intellectualized process, if you're lucky, right? If you're unlucky, more often it just happens in the most... Right. It, it can happen states or... You guys don't have states. You have provinces or is that just We Canada? have states, actually. We have oh, states. you do? Okay. Yeah, we do. Yeah, not as you. many as I, you, but... <laughs> it's not about how many. About yeah. Good, but, but yeah, so I mean, your, your house could be made a long ways away and shipped on the back of an 18-wheeler and have no yeah. relationship to the land or the orientation or anything else. Yeah, uh, it that's just, right. It just arrives one day. You know, there's a very there's a little story by uh, Adolf Loos, Viennese architect, who describes. It's beautifully written. He describes a, a, a beautiful scene by a lake and a forest, and there's a village, right? and he says everything is at one. Right? Everything is kind of natural and peaceful. It's a serene experience. It's a serene landscape. All of these things seem like one, and then over here. And what just catches his eye is a villa, right? And, and what he says is that, that that serenity is lost, right, by the presence hmm. of the villa at, at the lake. And he says it doesn't matter whether the work is, the, is, a, is that of a good or a bad architect, right? That 
oneness, that interconnection, um, has been spoiled. And in a sense, that I think that is what he's getting at, this very thing that we're talking about. Hmm. Now, in a way, I, I disagree with someone who's probably far superior to my accomplishments in every way, but how, how does he explain that? Why is, why is the, is, is it a symbiosis that is lost in, in that, that moment of everything being one and being interrupted by the villa? Like, what is his explanation and thought process on that being an intrusion in that environment? Well, I think it's that very point that um, the villa is the work of a, of a kind of alienated modern humanity right, mm. that has lost its connection to a okay. place. And that is a reality, all of us, right. we're all like that. I mean, I was, right. you know, I live here, I was actually born somewhere else. I, you know, my, my connection to a place is, is tenuous. And, and, you know, we celebrate our, um, our, our uh, globalized existence now. Most, you know, the United States was basically all settled in a, in a modern period. You know, the, if you think about um, First Nations people, Native Americans or uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders in Australia, the, these are, this is a culture that is deeply and spiritually connected to a place. And you, right. you rob those people of their land, you push them off their land you affect them in a way that we're not affected by. You know, we, we think about land as something we own, something instrumental, something to be used. We don't mm. really think about it as something kind of more poetic, more spiritual and more sustaining. Perhaps now we're beginning to realize that we're in a much more sensitive symbiotic relationship with, with the landscape, with the natural mm. world. But basically we've come out of a modern period where we, we treat nature in an instrumental, exploitative way, right? And mm. uh, that tends to be our cultural dominant. And that, and that is what causes this great problem for us. And, and right. for us, how do we now think about it? Because you can't, you can never go back, you know, we've, uh, we've, it's lost, right? Yeah. So now we have to find a new way to make an authentic connection. Hmm. Right, so it's not, so would it would it be correct in in receiving what you said in comparative in, in comparing uh, the villa on the pond that that villa could be part of that oneness were it done or designed and built uh, as architecture for this place is that is that a possibility in 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 your mind and in Adolf's mind I hate saying the name Adolf without a last name. <laughs> Don't you? Not yeah, Hitler. It's terrible, terrible. Lose. Let's just call him Lose. Lose. Uh, Lose. Uh, well, I think to, to answer your question from my perspective, I think this is one of the greatest challenges we face mm -hmm. in contemporary architecture, and and one of the you know it's a, perhaps an overused word, authenticity, but um, I think it is something to strive for um, that we need mm. to we need to design buildings, we need to make architecture. And we need to make our um, intrusions and adjustments to place uh, in a way that are authentic. And one, you know, one proposition, one reference I make at some point in one of these essays is about the work of, for example, Mies van der Rohe, and um, uh, you know his his villa that sits apart from the landscape. You know, it sits up, uh, mm -hmm. and it just 
lets the landscape flow around it. Right? And in a way, this is a this is a this is the Farnsworth House I'm, I'm talking about. So you mm -hmm. know, mid twentieth century building, and the the proposition there is that this this is a a modern work right, that sits separate from the landscape in order to not destroy the landscape. Right? Mm. So so in a way, it's a recognition that we can no longer make the same kind of connection, the same kind of authenticity, that same sort mm. of vernacular unself-conscious work. Now it is self-conscious, right. but, but perhaps the first step is to not cause damage, you know, right. and to sit apart from it and to suspend us in a way that we can begin to develop an understanding with the landscape. And that that is one step, you know, and that is sort of one interpretation of late twentieth century. I think we can we can go further than that, is is my view. But you we've got to be really wary of um a, a reduction a reductionist approach that we actually pay lip service that we for example we make things look like the shape of a uh, of a vernacular building you know we just do something that superficially looks that way and think right. that we have created that connection because we've actually done the complete opposite by doing it hmm so hmm okay you're, you're getting me thinking <laughs> um <laughs> All right, I'm I'm gonna I'm mull that over. It's gonna come back up a little later. I don't want to jump the gun, but let's move on to your your definition of truth. How do you how do you understand truth? Uh, the, and there's also I found that there's a complicated relationship between the definition of truth and the definition of fact. Not as much the current cultural everyone has their own facts. Thing, but a fact is a, uh, a an extremely objective thing within our reality, and truth to me seems to be a quality of a thing that you um, have an ability to understand only through relating to it. Hmm. And in your uh, writing and understanding architecture and relating it and and looking at it through through truth, or if architecture can tell us about truth, what is your definition of truth? Ah, okay, well, thank you for that. And there's some good, good observations in that question. I've, um, I put forward this uh, concept of truth and lies in architecture as a way of trying to explore actually the very nature of your question. Um, and it's a very difficult one. So you know, you, at one point there, you referred to this sort of relativity about truth and facts. And of course, mm -hmm. the fact that the reality is that we're now operating in an environment whereby opinion and fact are very difficult to distinguish. And right. that we actually right. tend to distort fact through um, our media, through basically popularity, number of hits, through assertiveness that our, our grip actually on what is a fact is very, very weak now, probably uh, one of its weakest. Um, and this is a overall environment which makes these questions even more difficult. And when we think about truth, you're right, it is, it is different. If we could even come at an, an agreement on what is a fact, and you would like to think we could, you know, <laughs> the sun will rise. Right? This is not, no matter how many uh, opinions we get to the otherwise, it will. Um, that there might be a basic fact there. That when we think about truth, that is something a little, a little, a little more difficult, a little more um, 
driven by values, I think. Um, and what the question I ask is, what is architecture's relationship to truth? Right? Can, mm -hmm. can architecture indeed tell any truths? Is it, is it a completely redundant term in relation to architecture? And, in in um, what way could architecture uh, illuminate truth or tell a truth? That's right. And what is the nature of that truth? Exactly right. right. So if we think about, so in that in the in the essay in the in the book, um, truth truth and lies, or I think it's the truth of architecture and the lies of the architect. I I do I like the, I'm I'm really going to have to get this book now. This I'm I'm liking yeah. all the the embedded contradictions yeah. that seem to come out as not contradicting just from yeah. the from the beginning of this conversation. Sorry to interrupt. That's all right. One of the essays, speaking of contradiction, is called True and Not True, which is explores this idea, can something be true and not true at the same time? You know, and uh, mm. it's quite it's quite an it's quite an interesting philosophical scientific research on that very issue. Um, but the proposition is what truths can architecture tell and we know for example if we think about the modern period there are there was an idea that uh, architecture did have some kind of moral purpose and i think throughout the history of architecture there has been that idea that architecture is associated with values with a kind of moral kind of virtue or otherwise mm -hmm. and um you know you, we've seen that a lot in that proposition architects talk about truth to materials We've seen buildings attempting to represent certain ideas. Um, you know, we saw that, for example, we've seen that right through the kind of classical period. We've seen it actually in various regimes that have come in, whatever they may be, whether they're Soviet regimes, Nazi regimes, or, or whether they're Western, we see an idea about architecture. But mm -hmm. also, if you look at the history of architecture, you can see that architecture is in many ways transparent to that that actually, if you think about classical architecture, mm -hmm. classical architecture has had such a long history that the associations of its use and its meaning have almost been washed out of it. That mm. it's used, so it can be used, it's used for um, uh, Christian religious purposes just as, as much as it's used for pagan uh, purposes in history. It's used for a symbol of democracy in Washington Right, and it was used uh, by Adolf Speer to represent the values of fascism, or indeed in communism. Um, mm. uh, we, we see classical architecture being a kind of free-for-all, in a sense. It's almost an idea that it has been robbed of any associated meaning, and you can use it for whichever purpose you want. Now, a, a, a state or statement or question there, is classical architecture something that got at a truth so deep that it can be used to it, it can be used by any ideology because of the base of how how deep they pulled from to create these relationships of what has become essentially just a you know color by numbers design book you can you can do that with classical architecture and get every time a you know good looking building you you can do yeah. that it's it's just not hard it's it's a recipe book i don't have anything against classical architecture i just don't think we my personal opinion is that i don't think we need to keep building it 
I think we need to progress, but that's my personality. I understand that mm. and that's fine. But is there, is there any potential in that in your thinking that classical architecture pulled from something so deep that it is then able to be used by anything to express their ideas of how they manipulate a deeper truth potentially? Yeah, and indeed, that is a that is a great question, which I do explore a little bit. That the idea that um, classical architecture, because because of its inherent relationship to, I guess, our lives and 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 human proportions and so on, and because of the fact that it's been used over thousands and thousands of years, that perhaps it has developed a certain autonomy, if we put it that way. And this is this yeah. whole question of the autonomy of architecture, that that actually uh, architecture is something into itself, and it, there's something more essential. In its relationship to humanity, and that you know maybe that was part of the thinking and the work of people like Aldo Rossi and so on, um, and and we keep building classical architecture, you know, absolutely, we keep going, we keep going, um, but what I also suggest is that I don't think that is really that really holds true because if we if we go beyond a Western history, right, if we if we for example if we look at Native Americans, if we look at Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders, we look at some um, more indigenous cultures, then classical architecture is a very powerful representation of oppression right? and, and, mm. and does not relate to ways of being which are actually more fluid, which are actually more directly connected to nature. And mm. it's, it's like putting, if you put people who are connected with nature inside those classical boxes, it is going to be a deeply disturbing and alienating experience for them. So I suggest that architecture is never mute in that way. Mm. And the other, the other thing I suggest is that architecture is never innocent, you know, that um, we, uh, whatever goes on in these buildings, right, um, will affect them, right, that... Uh, you know whether it's good or bad, whether the deeds within behind these doors are um, abhorrent or inspiring, that will affect the architecture. It will affect our association, and that is why ultimately, you know, some of these buildings need to be preserved and and remembered, and some of them need to be pulled down. You know that mm. uh, that that connection between our lives, our values, our culture, and architecture is close ultimately mm. whether we want it to be or not so i'm yeah. i'm against that idea of autonomy now could classical architecture be considered indigenous architecture of greece at that period of time then is that a fair assumption of that or i think so yes i think i think if you look at the if you look at the uh, origins of classical architecture then it, it goes back to a real essential um, building of a, of a vernacular, you know, and uh, you see that in a lot of the theorizing around architecture that it, that, and, and what you're dealing with is a transformation of something really quite basic and in a way very vernacular through mm -hmm. a almost a process of evolution, right, over, <laughs> over, over generations of, of hundreds and, and thousands of years into something which is then highly rarefied and, and, and kind of uh, intellectual. But but ultimately did have that connection. But you're right; it's it's a connection to a certain locale. Right. Yeah. And and in that place, it was indigenous or original to that 
geographic location of the people of that time who probably unseated some other people that were there before them. Uh, this is always a difficult thing for me to to know how to hold. It's a hot potato, so it's like, what do you do with it? <laughs> but it's like, how long until the current architecture that we're doing around the world and in each geographic location becomes indigenous over time? And then someone else is going to come along and move this out and this will come in and and then a thousand years from now there'll be the same kind of conversation about what we established wherever and whoever we are then again it becomes an another rolling over of this let's you know let's respect what we would then call first nations people a thousand years from now but mm -hmm. you know the conversation always continues further back well if you think about it those americans they were not First Nations people. It was the Native Americans. And then the Native Americans yeah. have this ability to say between themselves, the Navajo were first. No, we were first. And it, mm. it's, uh, it's a hard conversation and it's a hard understanding of, of what, is, what is truly right. Because every, I, I mean, is there a culture that doesn't have blood on its hands that would not eventually have its architecture be viewed as something of an oppressive, um, uh, an oppressive uh, vernacular or an oppressive language of architecture to someone else, right? That's that's just an odd cu cultural conversation in my head that I don't know how to relate to. I think that uh, what's happened at a certain period is that that evolution of architecture in relation to a particular locale and culture is broken. Hmm. Um, and that that whole ability for evolution to work, and I, and, and also in reality, evolution is uh, being completely disrupted by the triumph of humanity. You know, we we are so so powerful now hmm. that the whole um, you know our control over our environment is so complete almost that it's interrupted those processes of evolution. Yeah, it's like we're becoming so that, a consciously evolving rather than yeah. biologically. Yeah. Yeah, and that brings into play another thing which I think is really interesting, which is this idea of consciousness and technology, you know, that we've, uh, and the idea now that evolution is actually been completely bent and distorted by technology, and that our pathway as humans to evolution, evolutionary process is now not so much the Darwinian model anymore, but is uh, the intervention of our technology, which of course you yep. could think, where's the gap, which is where this this question of consciousness, you know, how far does consciousness extend beyond our own human human limits comes into play, right. Right? which is slightly another issue, but a really interesting one, which also is, is a subject of one of, one of those essays in there. Um, yeah. And why why there is that image on the cover of the book, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, I love the, that, that cover. Yeah, yeah, which is about, it's because I find that really interesting, is this question of consciousness and representation um, so, so what I'm, I guess what I was getting I get slightly distracted there, but so, so what I'm suggesting to you is that at some point that connection has been broken and now we are self-conscious that, that actually it can't just happen naturally, that, that architecture can't evolve in the way that it did with, the, with classical architecture, for example, mm. or the slow multi-generational evolutionary of a vernacular uh, or an indigenous architecture that it's so much faster now 
that right. uh, technology, speed, and I think the production processes around architecture are so complex right, and powerful that they disconnect us from that process. That no longer happens. So, so the, the turnover now is so quick, right? Um, and, and, you know, the extreme is Instagram, right? The, 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 you know, we now consume architecture uh, as, a, mm -hmm. as a series of images in a fleeting fraction of a second, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then we want the next one, right? And then we move on to the next one. And we're expecting now something to change because we're a bit bored of it. We want to go on the next one. We're a bit over arches now. We want to go to something else, whatever it is. Right. And, 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 we, and we kind of consume architecture that way. Now, that was never the case. Before we experienced architecture, that it was, we actually had to go, we had to live in it, we had to get connected with it. So, so those processes have changed. And I think it is, it is very difficult now to create those relationships of any depth and of any, of any substance. I think that's, that's a challenge, you know, and that's one of the things that makes it very, very difficult mm. for us. Yeah, we, we have such an immense, we have such an immense ability of information, uh, just absolutely absurd, uh, instantaneous mm. connection to every other single human on the earth, practically. Mm. And, and we've become far more of a hive mind now than these far more uh, controlled gatekeepers of information like we had just 10 years ago, hardly, you know, 10, 15 That's years right. ago. And there, yeah. there seems to be such an incredible power there. It's like we've discovered fire again. And, mm. and if it's out of control, it'll burn the whole house down. But it's one of the most valuable things we've ever discovered, fire. And the same with the sun. Mm. It'll burn you to a crisp, mm. but it's also going to mm. give you life. And mm. you, there, there's these discussions of, you know, flee from technology and run to the woods. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think that's the answer. I think it's face it. Uh, experience it and learn how to interact with it wisely because we're far more intelligent than we are wise because we can have every bit of information we want but it's still we're limited in experience and it's only experience with knowledge that gives you wisdom and to have all this intelligence and ability and hardly any wisdom to speak of we're just going to run it into ground we're not going to be any different than lionfish that are taking over the eastern seaboard they have no natural predators and they just, they go wild. We're, humans are essentially an invasive species, not because of where we're at and that we're out of control because we don't have predators as much as our intelligence makes us able to be the absolute top thing with no other predator other than ourselves. And we're going to take ourselves out if we're not wise about it. So. That I, I really appreciate the this the 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 look into this in in your book and these subject matters that you're bringing up. I think it's really interesting. Um, mm. To to move on so we don't go on forever, mm. but I I really mm. love the distracted conversation of artificial consciousness and everything else. But mm. we'll we'll try and stay mm. on track. Um, mm. What what's your definition of beauty? How do we experience and know what is beautiful? Is it is beauty only a subjective thing or is beauty something that can be objective in your opinion? Well, that's a great question. And I think that uh, uh, there, there's a yes and no answer to that one. <laughs> one of these because, paradoxes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a paradox, right? Because, um, you know, one of, one of the issues we face 
uh, in our uh, globalised existence is um, relativity, cultural relativity, uh, relative values through the world. It's a respect for cultures um, and a recognition that our tendency, the, the modernist tendency, right, the globalised tendency, is to crush difference, right, mm. to be intolerant of it. Uh, even if that's not our value, even if we don't consciously do that, and we do it a lot, but even if we don't, uh, we will do it just through being alienated modern individuals with all of the commercial processes that we bring along will we'll crush cultural difference. But what I think we realise is that in doing that, um, we lose something really vital. Um, and we see that in the in the natural world too. If you see in the, in the extinction of PC of animal life and plant life, um, just through just through all of our processes of, of inhabiting this world at the moment, um, uh, we are crushing it. We're crushing that difference. And then what we realise is that with that extinction, we will lose food sources. We'll use. Uh, medical innovations will use resources we will we will destroy things before we've even discovered them that biodiversity is absolutely fundamental to our continued life and existing existence just as our cultural biodiversity is really fundamental to our ability to grow and develop as as a, as humans and to be and to address the very challenges that you've just put to us right <laughs> that are this question of wisdom right you know, because mm -hmm. the the most important bit of wisdom you've got to have is 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 realizing what you don't know, right? Right. Um, and and uh, how risky it is to act with ignorance. Right? Mm. Um, so so you've got this one question, which is this relative question that we've got to be respectful of difference, and we've got to understand it. At the same time, I think we've got to recognize that, notwithstanding that, there is also something deeply fundamental about being a human being. That, he, that connects all of us, connects all of those cultures, um, and and even even the ones that seem impossible to connect. You know, we are all people. You know, we have children. We, you know, we want a better life for the next generation. We want we want to look after the world in a way. You know, we want. There's something really fundamental about our relationship to this earth. Um, and that if we if we are too focused on difference and relativism, we will actually miss what is the most important thing, which is actually what will connect those cultures. And it's only that that's going to save us from killing each other. Right? So, so, you, so you have these two truths in a way which mm -hmm. can seem incongruous, right? And I think it's that that's that's where, of course, paradox perhaps is the truest place we could be hmm. that ability to the, be able to see both yeah that that idea of paradox is similar to having conflicted uh emotions emotions will naturally make you biased in uh decision making or uh, or even predicting things or how you react to things but when you have conflicting emotions you're you are more accurate in your predictions. This is coming from a NPR. I think it was, um, I think it was a Hidden Brain episode about conflicting mm. emotions, and some of the studies mm. they done uh, that they've done. I'm sure I'm botching this in some way, but go, everyone, go listen to it yourself. Mm. You'll like it. But um, conflicting emotions help a person or cause a person to seek more outside advice, 
to, and also to be able to make predictions far more accurately and have less bias because they're not, in a sense, being a victim of their own emotions, pushing them to one choice rather than uh, fairly considering the multiple choices that are always in front of you. And that, that idea of paradox, I think, is, is a similar thing where you, you can kind of see this is right and this is right, but they make each other not right. What's going on? It, it makes you, in that same moment, kind of say, we're missing a piece of the puzzle here. And that, that's, a, hmm. that's a good thing to embrace that paradox and to dig deeper in it rather than to just squash one side of the paradox and say, we're just going to go with this side and just ignore that or kill it or whatever. So. That that is absolutely right, and uh, and it's becoming very very difficult to inhabit that space that you just talk about because our, our world is so polarized, right? That uh, yeah. you're here or you're there, right? You're for or you're against, and it's um it's very difficult. And I realise there's a great comfort in 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 one of those poles, right? The, yeah. the it's the sort of deceit of of, of certainty. You know, it gives yeah. you perhaps a, a really artificial sense of security. And knowing, mm -hmm. which unfortunately is entirely false, because uh, everything is in the gray. If, if the truth is anywhere, it's in the gray. Right. It's in the tension between the poles, mm. and that—that exactly that right. to me, the the natural the the natural position of the polarization is one of conscientiousness, following what is established, and openness, seeking to better what we have established. And you, you have the dissection of the, uh, or the, the separation of the American political system. You've got your conservatives, the conscientious, and your liberals, you're far more open. And they, they, it's odd, they both seem to think that they're singularly right. And they do not give the grace to say, I need your perspective to improve this thing. And the other side doesn't have the ability to say, we need to respect uh, to some degree, what is established because it's it what uh, it's what offers us our safety and our ability to rejuvenate ourselves before we go back out and try and figure out how to do and improve more things. And without these two working together, it it's as bad as if men and women became polarized and no one was mating to make more kids. It it it's. Mm -hmm that intrinsic in our biology that we have these different dispositions of maintain what's established and improve what's established and discover more those two dispositions if they are not married and working properly descend into ultimate chaos and 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 a loss of what we have been able to establish and in it's the open side that's always you know coming back and saying we haven't been respectful we need to improve that we need to improve this and like even kind of a, a, a um, an emotion you could take away from from a critical approach to to the built environment is that a more um, conscientious person might say, "You're trying to make me feel bad about what I've built," and that is not what's being said. What's being said is we need to be careful about this. We have we've. It's not that you're bad, we just have so much power and are making such an incredible um, impact on everything because of our ability that we need to be more careful about this. We need to rethink it and improve what we're doing and make that an established thing for a time 
until we can make a better establishment. And we have to constantly be working on that establishment. So me running off topic there. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. It's but, like, um, it's, it is. It is. The, I, there is an essay in my book called uh, Bridges of Labab, I think it is, which is um, and Labab is an invert of the word Babel. Right? And it's uh, mm. it does. It is about this question. So I start by looking at the Tower of, of Babel. Right? Um, and which was an act of uh, unified humanity to connect us with God, right? Right. Um, but uh, God struck it down, right? And 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 made our language multiple, right? And spread us around the world, right? Um, so we could no longer do that. <laughs> so in a sense, um, our mission, I think, is and related to the question you're asking, is to reassemble these fragments that have been disconnected and spread but keep them whole mm. right but bring them into some new assembly right and not one of exclusion not one that actually crushes difference but one mm. that can embrace it into a more unified kind of a cultural and social concept and that mm -hmm. that that is not classicism <laughs> that right. is the in a sense it's it, it's it's not the inverse of it it's just not that singularity no it's not that it's not unity at the expense of difference mm, mm, right so this leads me to my next question um in this metaphorical story of the tower of babel or literal true story of the tower of babel or somewhere in between uh there's a lesson to be learned from people working together to reach to to be safe on their own i think was the the idea of, of building the tower of babel so a flood could not get them um i'm not a theologian i'm just a hobbyist but um in in that thing there, there's in that whole story there's there's metaphorical meaning and, and a lot going on there but all of that kind of hinges on what a person uh, understands God to be. So in your thinking, being the author of this book, who's thought a lot to be able to make a book, what is your definition of God? Gosh, well, what an interview. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's where I go. <laughs> uh, well, I think that uh, it's very difficult to define that, you know, and uh, um, I use that story um, as a point of dealing with this very question we're talking about of, uh, of uh, unity and, and, and something that brings humanity together, but also how do we deal with the fact that we're actually so diverse and how do we not crush, crush us? So, and, you know, so of course it's connected with how do, we, how do we actually have a community without crushing the individual, you know, and that's an incredible balance to deal with. The question of, so, of course, the purpose of the tower was actually to get to heaven. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which made a lot of sense, right? It's a bit literal and it's impossible because heaven isn't really like that. And I think if I would extend that analogy, God isn't really like that either. Um, and that God is such a um, difficult and loose concept that humanity has used for so many different purposes that it becomes uh, difficult to assign a particular meaning to it. Um, I think that uh, the concept of God um, 
is really something that connects us beyond our existence. It's, it's really a search for something within us which connects us um, in a way that we don't really experience. Right? It's a kind of drive for an interconnectedness. And I don't actually think it's just between human beings. I think it's with the whole world. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like the, the, the experience and the concept of the sublime, if I put it that way, that, mm -hmm. that you know, if you, if you um, go to the Grand Canyon, for example, I remember my first visit there, it was like mind blowing. Or if you sit at the edge of the ocean, or if you're in a forest and you can have an, over, uh, an overwhelming feeling of connection, right? Where your individuality, the thing that particularly in the 21st century we are so obsessed with, seems to just ebb away, right? That you, you're no longer an individual. You feel kind of connected. And in a way, you know, the concept of the sublime is huge, right? It's this huge experience of nature that makes you as an individual feel small, but it feels good to be small, right? Mm, you feel the death connected. of ego in a way. Exactly. And that, that then I think is the concept of God. Mm. Yes, I can, I can, you, you, I can you escape yourself, that. right? Yeah, you can. Yes, yes. The thing that the biggest burden we carry around, right, is this invention of who we are, right? And it's a huge uh, burden to carry is this constant invention of who we are. And, 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 and today, in a, in a kind of modern, globalized world where you can be anything, right? You can be yeah. absolutely anything you want. So now you, it didn't used to be like that. Previously, you used to be a farmer, and you know, you were, mm. your mum and dad were farmers, and you were going to be a farmer. It was really clear your life was right. clear. Now, now it's not. Now you can be anything you want, and so you have to decide what you're going to do. And it's uh, mm. your identity then becomes a huge project for you. And now, of course, because your identity is now arguably more virtual than real, um, it's even more concentrated, right? So you, your, your whole life is your obsession with your identity. And it's mm. perhaps the escape of that is what we might think of as a term which I struggle with. God, I... I I, th I think it's not so useful because it's um, such a powerful kind of association with it, which makes it difficult to escape all of that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, there's, there's two things there. Um, so this idea of the, the Tower of Babel in, in modern times, it, it seems like you could almost adjust the metaphor, the story, the factual retelling, whatever it is, to the Tower of Babel actually being individuals in today's society where we are constantly trying to build something that is indestructible, that keeps us safe, that, uh, that reaches for God as a self-centered thing. And when you do that, it, it, it all comes crumbling down eventually if it's self-centered. And mm. I, I wonder if there's, there's some kind of deeper connection in that story to our culture today that is that is one that has lost uh, community being a large focus of that culture and far more an individualistic culture to where we don't as much together as much in past times strive to create things between us that 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 protect us and raise the god but we're kind of lost in this virtual reality and everything else of us making 
towers of Babel of ourselves. I wonder that that's an unpolished thought there, but. <laughs> oh, but I think there's something um, in that because if so, you know, what I suggest is that the, the tower form itself, right, um, mm-hmm. in a way is, is an absolute expression of what you're talking about. It's, it's incredibly singular, right? It is, mm-hmm. it is almost in itself figural. It almost looks like one person, right? It's trying to drive everything together and reach to the skies, right? And it's so, so right. powerful. We're obsessed with it, right? Architects are, are kind of obsessed with towers. Right? It's almost been the pinnacle, in a way, of what, what we're all supposed to do is build a tower, right? right. Humanity generally. And um, so, in a way, the suggestion is it's, it's wrong. And the, what, what I, what I, uh, the dialectic I throw against it is actually the bridge, you know? So it's the, mm. it's the bridge, bridge of Labab as opposed to the Tower of Babel. And, okay. and so it's the metaphor is connection, right? And something which is mm. uh, in some ways, you know, tenuous, uh, more horizontal uh, and more pulls us together. I mean, so in another essay, actually, in this book called The Fall of the Architect, I talk about the tower. Um, it's a slightly strange essay in a way, but it's about, I, I talk about high, high place syndrome, right? Which is the kind of call of the void, you know, where, you know, you have that experience where you go towards the edge, for example, of a tall building or a cliff, and you feel the draw of the void, right? You feel a temptation to step out. You know, it's a, oh, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a natural syn- syndrome we have. I think something like 60% or 40% of us are actually have that sense um, mm. that we want to jump, right? And um, anyway, I, I explore that a little bit and how it kind of relates to architecture. But in a way, what I'm suggesting is the tower itself is an, is an alienating form. It disconnects us with the ground. Mm. It pulls us together in a way which is artificial, um, and that maybe that intuition to jump is uh, is is actually a kind of reflection of something we need to do. Not jump, don't get me wrong, but connect to the ground and yeah, maybe and, uh, a, connect to each yeah. other. Yeah, because the yeah, is it's an extremely metaphorical stretch, mm. but that's where you when you're when you're this advanced that's you have to reach pretty far to understand where all this came from and why we have it that's right and, i that's mean right. And I'm not, it's an absurd I'm not, thing you know i'm yeah i get that all the yeah. time when i'm on top of yeah. the building it's like don't jump i'm saying that to myself <laughs> and i'm not depressed i love my yeah. family i love my life i do not yeah. want to die but i have yeah. to tell myself that would be a lot of fun until you hit that ground you know and I, yeah. is it something that's like you're you're up above everything, you're at the pinnacle of it, and there's there's nowhere to go but down from here. So jump or I don't know. Again, kind of an unpolished thought, but there's definitely something there. And, and I, I there wonder. is something there. That's exactly right. There is mm. something there in that feeling which we have. Yeah. Yeah. So the other the other thing that that came out of this last question is that I've been as a hobby. Uh, trying to understand God for the last decade, trying to come up with a definition that's, that's suitable. And, and in reading you know, over this, it, it's a, a bit of a reoccurring thing, at least with Tower of Babel. Um, but the, this idea, the deepest I can get on it, is this, this idea of truth and relationship. Relationship's a better word than love, in my estimation, but love is a broader term, but it often in humans conjures up, I mean, we're the only ones who use the word, so, okay. 
but mm. in in people we we understand love to be a romantic thing i understand love to be a relationship not not a feeling but a relationship and this idea of truth and relationship are are the most foundational things that i can come to that i can see the relationship of relating and truth you have consciousness the ability to relate what is true outside of us or between us the things so that this idea of there there is truth and the only way you can understand what that truth is is to relate to it and that seems to go all the way down to the atomic level and beyond in in things that you know like electrons are the most uh, subjective thing they're mm. everywhere and nowhere and yet they're they're bound to this this nucleus and if you break that relationship there's a really strong reaction that goes up the chain in a, in a disastrous way and that that's that's been a really interesting thing for me to uh, translate in my head when people say God what I translate it to mean is truth and relationship and to add to that I'll say to myself truth and love in an honest and 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 uh, selfless manner because there's no other way to understand truth than through relating to it and if you're reading about someone else's relating to it and figuring out what is true and conveying it to you that's still truth from a relationship and I haven't found a way to get to a more foundational or deeper level of understanding of what people say is God and if a person allows themselves to come up with a, a, uh, a definition of God that is one of a graven image of image of the mind that is a uh, anthropomorphization of themselves into what they want God to be well then that just becomes a tool for you to build your ego in accordance to what you believe God to be so mm. to to strip all that away and say it is simply God is uh, both truth and love or truth and love interacting. And that, that is manifested within the bell curve of uh, masculine and feminine. And it's the process of objectification and subjectification. It's nominalization and denominalization. It's, it's the ebb and flow of everything and the, and the balancing effect. So mm. side note, Anna. Well, interest, interesting thoughts you have there. And, and um, you know, um, one of the ways in which I, I I'm suggesting we can think about God is uh, is in the way we can escape ourselves, right, and the burden mm. of being who we are. And if you if we think about some of the if we think about for, for example Michelangelo, um, he said that when he is working, when he is making his art, was not by him, right? Mm. It was it was from God through him, right? And that he he didn't make these decisions. It was flowing through him. He was an instrument, right, for this creativity. Right. And we all know the feeling of um, you know being in the flow, right? Being mm -hmm. in that space when exactly. you're not self-conscious anymore. You're not self-conscious anymore. And I think perhaps if I, I I reflect on some of the questions you've asked, and we and we go back to what's a way forward, right? Um, it is in that space. I mean, I, 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 there's a there's a bit of uh, 
um, in my, there's an essay in my book about about architectural theory, and I, uh, which I have uh, a lot of respect for and time for. Uh, but what I also say is that theory is, is it doesn't help practice, right? It's actually an impediment to practice. It's a good impediment, right? But the only way that in in the world that we exist in with all of its complexity and all of its demands and all of its limitations and all the pressures you come under as a designer, um, that the only way we can respond to the pressing cultural and social issues um, is actually through intuition. Right? It is mm. through putting all of this aside. It can't be self-conscious, is what I'm saying, that if you can just be open to use the expression you were using a moment ago, if you, if right. you can actually step aside, step out of yourself for a moment, if you can just step into the work, right? If you can get mm -hmm. in the flow, then then maybe that is a way forward. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. Your architectural theory would, for me, would be reading it from a book and trying to, in my experience, bring in what someone else has discovered and make me push it through that cheese grater, essentially. Mm. Mm to create something where what you're saying is if you use your intuitive abilities of perception within the moment of experience and are honest with yourself see that to me is that definition of god that exactly. being exactly. being very present in relating to what is and yes. and and it's in that moment where where self dissolves away and you there there's something about uh, an extremely, if you can control it, there's something about a very emotional state. If you can allow yourself to be in a very emotional state while still maintaining an articulate brain state rather than an emotional control of your actions and words, if you can be present and observe high emotion while being art to articulate and think you you become perceptive at a a very highly effective level and i've seen it in in different speakers and felt it in my own experience uh like a lot of times if i'm thinking about some of these type of subjects i'll listen to a song over and over and over while processing these things and I'll find that the emotion of that song uh, allows me to be far more perceptive in that moment. But there's a limited amount of times that that song can cause that emotion in me. It, it wears off. Like, it, it mm -hmm. becomes repetitive after a spell of time, and I, I don't get the same thing from it. It does not allow me to be as perceptive as the first, you know, 50 times I listened to it while writing or thinking or, or working things out. And it's such an odd thing for me to, to realize that. And, and, and it also leaves me looking for music that allows me that, that emotional presence. And, and I use it as a tool when I'm thinking. It's, it's a very mm. odd thing that I've never fully processed. But let me i have uh let's see i think five remaining um statements from this the summary of your book that i went over you mm. answered one of them about um architectural mm. practice or theory um mm. so there's only five remaining but 
Um, so you had this statement that any building that damages and undermines our symbiosis with the natural world is not architecture. And let me see if I can answer that as if you're telling me, because I think you told me, but I want to know that I'm actually learning this. So mm -hmm. uh, like this example of the villa on this, this setting of oneness around a pond, this, this villa is not architecture if it is not fully respectful and present and um, accommodating of the entirety of the situation around that setting. A, a poetic uh, process of building and relating to that setting is what architecture would be. Hmm. Yes, that's right. And I, that, the, the okay. quote that you read, you read there was from, from an essay in there, um, I think called the extinction of the architect, which uh, mm -hmm. um, explores the challenge of sustainability and climate change, and what the obligation of architecture is to us. Um, and one of the points I'm making in there is that um, architecture is not measurable. It's not a bunch of numbers. It's not just simply an analysis. And that a risk that we face in our in our profession is that we reduce the question of sustainability simply to a number process that uh, actually we we try to you know let's let's have zero carbon um, um, let's have uh, um, just completely minimized embodiment let's bring the whole thing right down and, and 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 a whole bunch of engineers can help us with this and then we will reach a sustainable architecture and what, what I suggest is that, that, of course, that's extremely important, in fact, essential, but it goes a bit deeper than that. And that if we are really going to develop a, a, a symbiotic and balanced relationship with our world, with, with the natural world uh, and everything it has, then architecture uh, in its poetic content will also have to create that symbiosis that we experience and we feel. Um, mm. And so that, that is, that is uh, the context of that comment. It, it, it seems like we have to admit to ourselves that we are exceedingly powerful, exceedingly capable, and are a danger to ourselves if we're not aware of how powerful we are and how intensely respectful and thoughtful we need to be within the environments that we overlay our will and our power. I mean, we're just, yeah. we're so effective at at you know uh at spreading our will around the globe if we're not conscious enough to understand what we're doing if, if you know if we're just a bumbling along lionfish eliminating mm -hmm. all the other marine life in in an ecosystem that we're uh, completely out of but we're not going to have anything to eat eventually and then we'll kill everything else and then we'll die and that's just that's not a good look so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um Art, my second statement here that I wanted to go over was architectural theory, but I believe you answered that very clearly. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And actually you went over um, talking about building tall. Perhaps it is the metaphoric human reach and the Tower of Babel and we covered that. Mm -hmm. So actually we only have four questions. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, architectural education. This, this one was interesting, me, interesting to me. Um, architectural, architectural education negatively is born of our training and in particular the predominance of the negative critique in our schools of architecture the negative critique seems to be a foundation of the education of the architect 
reaching a focus in the jury. Criticism of major projects often with external jurors where the student is expected to present and then defend the proposition. The language seems needlessly negative and combative, more suited to the courtroom setting and trial of an accused. Now, uh, my wife would strongly agree with you here. Being trained as an architect, I'm often very negative and very critical in my approach to everything. Uh, what is your take on architectural education and, and what are you outlining and what are you proposing in your opinion, in your thought process? Well, what I'm, what I'm getting at there is, uh, and that, I think that's from um, one of those essays, which is about melancholy, the melancholy of the architect, something like that, um, where, I, where I, I do talk about what, where, why are architects the way we are? You know, why, why are we actually so critical? Why actually are we so critical of each other? Right? Um, uh, it's a deeply competitive and uh, negative culture that has evolved right. around our, our profession. And of, of course, having gone through architectural education and, and, and uh, um, teaching, um, I think that um, one of the problems is that architecture, we are trained um, to put forward concepts and defend them, right? And then to defend them in, a, in an environment where they're actually being attacked, right? And it's, uh, it's almost a cliche, you know, you think of, you think of Anne Rand, Howard, Howard Rourke, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright. As an architect, you are meant to know the truth, right? You've, you've, got, this, you've got this truth and you are gonna pound away at it and you are gonna realize that. And, and, the, and the greatest quality you need is a sense of absolute determination, right? Mm. Um, and, and, and my concern is that uh, these, these uh, kind of cultural norms that have uh, seeped into our profession, not, not entirely. I mean, our architects are also inherently generous. And I'm, and I'm saying that you would expect us to be, right? You would actually expect us to be deeply collaborative, deeply um, uh, community focused, because our art form has to be has to involve hundreds of people and you know we and other people pay for it right and other people build it so really we have to be like this but our training does seem to contradict that and i i worry that what we are producing through this process of a of a negative critique is exactly the architects that we don't need and i worry that we crush and exclude the very ones we do need and you know sometimes i think how many architects how many would-be architects have left because they cannot cope with that degree mm. of, of, of critique and, and what comes out of that training? And I think the, the very qualities we need to address the issues that we've been talking about um, and the, 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 that I try to explore are, if we're not careful, pushed out of, the, out of us in the training of the architect. Right. I can, I can easily gravitate towards a response to that that is one of well uh capitalism uh, uh competition survival and these are all um very uh very combative uh mm. and mm. and and striving um words and thoughts around well that's life that what else do you want us to do, you know? But the idea, you know, some people think of any hierarchical structure as being one of uh, dominance and oppression. 
And the interesting thing is that in uh, chimpanzee hierarchical structures, the ones who are at the top who get there by force and, and violence, uh, they have a short reign, and as soon as their back is turned, the others, two or three other, you know, moderately strong chimps will take them out. Now, the effective uh, chimps that get to the top of that hierarchical structure that stay in power for the longest are actually ones that are extremely cooperative. And the ones that get to the top of the hierarchical structure uh, actually spend the most time grooming all the other chimps. And, and I mean mm. by picking bugs off and eating them, whatever they do for grooming. This, this idea of um, community and empowerment to all of those who you're, you've been entrusted or nominated to lead, in that, in that system, that you know, chimp up there has been nominated. In the other system of hierarchy, that top chimp took it, the, the top position. And it will be taken from him as soon as, or her, as soon as the back is turned. You know, and that's, that's an interesting thing that hierarchical structures or leadership structures, these things that we've had for eons, they don't, they don't have to be these controlling oppressive things. They can be far, far more uh, flattened out and uh, community oriented in, in their distribution of responsibility and the people that move up typically are actually in, in human hierarchical structures a lot of time, they're more uh, hierarchical structures of competence rather than strength and power. When they're strength and power, they come crashing down in the most violent fashions. So it's an interesting take on that, that, you know, in my own experience, it's you, you make a proposal of, you know, uh, here's my design, here's how I met the requirements, and you present it as best as you can to try and take away any ability for negative opinions and critical feedback. And the less critical polling you can get on it, the more successful that project is and the better the, the grade you would get. Um, I, I, I can't envision right now like what a different um, structure of education would be like if it wasn't filtering out those who weren't competent in that way but maybe there's a w different way of understanding who's competent and how to assess that i don't i don't know i think uh you know it's a it's an interesting question that one but i i think you can begin by um if you are critiquing a project if you're a juror and you're critiquing a project even if we accept that system which i highly question um then you can you can look at a project and you can pull it apart and you can find out where it's weak uh, and mm. you can explore that. Or you can do the opposite. You can actually mm. find out where that project is strong. You can actually find in that project underneath, underneath it somewhere something really good. Right? You can mm -hmm. find a, a latent possibility in that project and you can help the student find what they have perhaps unknowingly discovered. Um, mm -hmm. And even that mindset change even in the same structure of the same system in my view makes a huge difference yeah yeah i need to learn how to embody that in many ways because i 
with my raising my kids, my wife is constantly raising our kids. My wife is constantly, uh, she's saying like, you, you always need to start with a soft startup. You need to start with like, let's outline what they're doing great before we talk about what they're doing wrong. And I constantly go right to the like, this is wrong because of that. You need to do this, change that, you know. My go-to is, is very negative, very critical. And I have to be very aware of that. I have to admit it to myself and make sure I'm not addressing these little, these little guys with this, like you're outlining. You here. must be an architect. I was trained as an architect, yeah, but I'm, yeah. I haven't practiced since 2005, probably. So I'm, but, I'm yeah, a recovering architect. It's a challenge architect. for all of us, that. Yeah, 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 right, right. That's a, a long process of recovery. Yeah, and there's, there's also something I've been toying with thinking about, that there's this, uh, there's this ability to know something, but the, the more intelligent people you are able to interact with, you realize that the really intelligent people realize how little they know. And the really exactly unintelligent right. people think they know everything. And that's... Uh, mm -hmm. That's a that's an odd thing, and and when you get to a place of actually knowing something, you realize that you can't tell someone else what you know as a means of getting them to the position with everything that you have there. So you have to allow them to either experience to that point of knowing, or the best thing you can do is lead them to the place where you're at simply with questions, never a statement, and by framing questions to lead them to the same place you're able to allow them to pave the road to that point of understanding i again an unpolished thought many unpolished thoughts today sorry about that <laughs> uh, they're um, the best ones yeah well they they create the longest conversations that go nowhere sometimes but that's all right that's what this is about podcasts <laughs> yeah um the i think let's see the two last ones permanence architecture is not mere change architecture is more perpetual transformation towards permanence it's more often about uncovering what it what it is in humanity that does not change so transformation towards permanence architecture is not mere change architecture is more perpetual transformation towards permanence can you explain that to me so i could actually understand it yeah, I think um, where that, I'm not exactly sure where that uh, line comes from, but um, there's an essay in there which is about time. Um, mm -hmm. And partly what I explore there is our obsession as architects with the idea of timelessness. Right? Mm -hmm. We often say that's one you know, quality we're looking for in this building is that it's going to be timeless. And, and, and I, I explore the 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 whole notion of um, time and architecture and, and culture and how one of the things that we try to do um, is escape our mortality right is to mm. is to deal deal with you know our existential limits that uh, right. this is going to stop right and um, you know it's one of the biggest challenges we've got um, and often architecture and uh, uh, cultural artifacts are pulled into that that we we try to make something we try to look for permanence right? mm -hmm. um, and 
the, th the other uh, characteristic that we have, I think, as designers is we, we, we have enormous pressure on us to do something different, right? That, well, that's gone, that's irrelevant. Right. You know, the, whole way we, the whole way we work now, our technology, everything is different, right? So you know, it couldn't be more different you know, than, than how it was 100 years ago, okay? We, we, we're, doing, we're doing this on screen, everything is virtual, we're not, you know, everything is different. So we need to change, we need constant change. But what you what you notice in that process is that um, actually, ironically, a lot of the people associated with some of these really new ways of working with high technology want to be in old buildings, right? <laughs> actually, they want to be in old buildings. And what you also notice is that while all of these things may change, there is so much which doesn't change about us that we are, of course, mm. we're exactly the same. That we want, we, we want a view out a window, we want some fresh air, we want a space that um, you know protects us and nurtures us, but also allows us to uh, experience difference and step out. You know, we want, we want. In many things, what I'm suggesting is don't change. And mm. within the intense pressure for change and innovation, it's really important to understand what doesn't change. And then, in relation to the pursuit of timelessness. What I explore there are what different ways in which architecture has responded to this, different, different ideas for how we can address this kind of threat, you know, our mortality. How do, we, how do we make an architecture that is going to stay, right? How can we do that? Um, and, and it's very interesting to, to explore what various movements or theories in architecture have proposed. And one of the, one of the ones in which... Uh, um, uh, what I begin to suggest, I think, in that line is um, uh, this idea that actually permanent evolution and change is, in fact, that way in which you are going to make something timeless. That is actually, in a way, by mm. accepting evolution and change and by seeing architecture as, in a less uh, definitive way, as a more continuous way, is, is in a more in a, in a way, more building on something that's gone before and something that's going to come, going to follow, right? That it's actually more of a contribution rather than a completion. You know, it's something incomplete. Is a is a way in which we can conceive of architecture and perhaps respond to this uh, challenge. Hmm. Yeah. When when I when I hear someone say like, "Oh, that's a really timeless thing," what what I interpret that to mean is you know 20 years from now it'll it'll still have an ambiguity to when it was created in mm. that people will still appreciate it even as styles change this one is so good that it will still be around and still be relevant um and that's that's and that's interesting in in like what you said that we're, we're constantly like, well, you, you can't just do the same thing. Well, why not? It's effective. It, it, you know, why do we have this drive to actually do something different? Is that ego or is that searching for creating something that could illuminate further truth while, uh, main, you know, while covering the basis of the needs and the, the things that have been established uh, you know, like boxes that we all know we need to check, but we want to do something new that might get closer to some truth that we don't yet know. 
and hence it, it's a little more timeless in that. That's kind of the the things that rumble around in my head when I when I hear mm. that. But, and that pretty much wraps up. Uh, we covered from different angles everything that I wanted to talk about there. So. Um, I really appreciate you getting up at probably 4 a.m. Australia time to make <laughs> Actually, it's not that bad. It was 7 a.m., but it wasn't that okay, bad. Okay, okay, good. So what time yeah, is it been, there currently? It, it is now uh, almost 8.30. Oh, okay, not too bad. It's 6.30. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we've been going yeah. for quite a while. I, I really appreciate uh, taking up a lot of your morning. Um, no, I hope you been, have it's a been good a pleasure day. talking to you, Trent. Really, really great to talk to you. Yeah, so I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for writing this book. I'm going to have to get a copy. I, I love things that I can get a start to finish multiple times in, in a digestible yeah. format. And yeah. the connectivity between them all being something that's philosophical and design oriented is right up my alley. So I haven't read it yet, but I think I'm actually going to. So uh, thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking all the time to put this thought in and caring enough to put this down on paper and clarify your thoughts to the rest of us. Thank you for coming on and uh, clarifying, clarifying uh, these things to me. Really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm excited to check this book out. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoy it.